0: That's a scarlet macaw. As far as birds go, they're about as colorful and charismatic as they come. With a dazzling red head and breast, deep indigo wings, and a splash of bright yellow in between, they've become icons of the tropical rainforests of Central and South America. Images of scarlet macaws show up on postcards and travel brochures for rainforest tours and eco-lodges. They're also extremely loud. Their calls can be heard from miles away. Being loud and brightly colored has made them a favorite of bird watchers. And seeing them in the wild is a highlight for many visitors to rainforests. But it's also
1: threatening their survival. The sound is like, it's, it's total chaos. These birds are really noisy. That's Dr. Boris Arevalo.
0: He's a biologist working to save one of the most endangered populations of scarlet macaws. In today's episode... We'll learn about these amazing birds, discover why they're at risk of disappearing, and hear about the extraordinary efforts underway to save them. Welcome, you're listening to Wild World. I'm your host, Dr. Scott Solomon. For our very first episode, we'll be visiting one of my favorite wild places, the Central American country of Belize. Belize is a tiny country at a little under 9,000 square miles in area. That's about the same size as Israel or the state of New Hampshire. Belize's modest human population means that, even though the country is small, it has a relatively low population density. In other words, there's plenty of space for nature and wild places. That has made Belize one of the real success stories when it comes to conservation in Central America. Belize is home to the majority of the Mesoamerican Reef, the second longest barrier reef in the world after Australia's Great Barrier Reef. But Belize is also home to some amazing savanna and rainforest ecosystems. Having both rainforests and reefs is what first attracted me to Belize. About 10 years ago, I started developing a new course in which we wanted to teach college students about tropical biology by bringing them out into the field. We chose Belize because we wanted the students to learn how to work in both the coral reef and tropical rainforest ecosystems. And Belize is just perfect for this. Our site for the rainforest portion of the course was Las Cuevas Research Station, which is located in the heart of the Chiquibul Forest. Just getting there was an adventure that involved muddy dirt roads and military checkpoints. But it was worth the effort. That's when I first met my guest for our very first episode of Wild World, Dr. Boris Arevalo. Dr. Arevalo is Assistant Country Director for the Wildlife Conservation Society's Belize chapter. Welcome, Boris. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So let's talk about your work with scarlet macaws. So when did you first realize that the scarlet macaws and the chicky bull were in trouble?
1: Uh, with the scarlet macaws, I, I think I didn't realize and uh, cause me to work with the species. I think the species found me in one way because in late 2010 I started to work with FCD.
0: Uh, FCD, that's Friends for Conservation and Development, the the local NGO that's working in the Chiquibul Forest.
1: Yeah, at that time they were just beginning to work with the uh, illegal wildlife trade, and the scarlet macau was one of those species, the focal species. Then I started to, to look more in detail and started to speak with other people in, in the region, in Guatemala and Mexico, and uh, started to absorb those trends, you Know that it was being poached at a high rate, And then reading about Liet Sharon Matola, the uh, founder and director of the Little Belize Zoo here, her reports of her expeditions in that area where she counted 150, maximum 200 macaws for the whole country of Belize. So with that number, it was alarming. And uh, adding the fact about 90 to 100 percent poaching rate of all nests that were detected in a breeding season, then it said, no, this is something that we need to address. And that started the work with the scarlet macaws that I spent uh, specifically working with the species.
0: So uh, those numbers are absolutely astounding. I mean, what you just said, you said 150 to 200 macaws, maybe mm-hmm. in the entire country, that's so few. And the poaching rates reaching into the 90s or even 100%. I mean, that's yeah. just mind blowing. Can you explain a little bit about, first of all, why poaching of macaws takes place? And- How does that actually happen? How do people poach macaws?
1: The main reason why poaching happens is because to have a scarlet macaw as a pet, the the lovely birds, beautiful, uh, bright colors, just the noise, uh, I don't understand uh, why someone would want to have a macaw as a pet. And most of the poaching that happens to the Belizean population of scarlet Macas, it is done by Guatemalan individuals. These Guatemalan individuals that live in the Guatemalan communities buffering the Chiquibul National Park. We have to uh, know their socioeconomics of them. They are really poor. They depend a lot on the natural resources. What has happened over the last decades in the Guatemalan side is huge deforestation about 80% of the natural vegetation has been transformed into another use of land. Cattle pasture is contributing about 90% of the deforestation in that region. So the people are poor and the high rates of deforestation, they don't have the natural resources in the area. And they look next door, which is the Chiquibul National Park, and they see that it is plentiful. We have forests, we have wildlife, and we have the scarlet vacas. So during during the breeding season of scarlet macaws, we have selected group of poachers that will come into the chickable and they literally will walk tree to tree looking if it has a macaw nest. And when they observe a macaw nest, they will take climbing spars, they will climb up the tree, extract the chicks, and they will go back to their villages. One scarlet macaw chick we have some information that will go around 900 to 1,500 US dollars in in the black market. Who buys the macaw chicks is something that we don't know for sure. We suspect is the people that have the money. It could stay in Guatemala, it could go to to Mexico, or even go outside of Central America into uh, North America or even Europe. But that we We cannot uh, be 100% sure that that is happening. All we know is that poaching is happening at uh, alarming rates and that people from poor Guatemalan communities are coming into the Chiquibul to extract the chicks and take them back to their villages where a middleman will come to the village, buy the Scarra chicks and take it either to um, the biggest town in the Petén department or they will go to Guatemala City and, and sell the the macaws in the illegal market. So
0: the chicks are being stolen from their nests and these macaws, they make nests up in the trees, but they don't make a, a nest like people might think of of like a bird's nest, right? They nest in cavities, in holes in the trees, is that right?
1: Yes. The scarlet macaw is obligate secondary cavity nester so they cannot make their own cavity it's not like a woodpecker that will peck and peck and peck and create a cavity and nest no so the, the scarlet macaw because it's a large bird it needs natural cavities to farm no naturally, uh, what the macaw will do is maybe help the process, but they don't build the the cavities themselves, so it depends a lot on other species to initiate the process and also on the natural decay of the trees in the cheeky bull, the scarlet macaws tend to favor trees that are along the rivers, and one main reason why we think that is because the trees are emergent; They pop out out of the forest canopy so you could see them. These are like giants in the forest now. And these trees are about a meter in diameter. They are about 40, 50 meters in height and they have those cavities that form over maybe decades that have the size that could accommodate a pair of breeding macaws inside. They will go inspect the cavity a year before they start to nest. So they have one year to just start to sort of improve the cavity before they start to use that cavity as as a nest, no? So it takes them a long time to find a suitable cavity. And another issue that we have apart from poaching is that the tree that they are using as their main nesting tree is a very soft wood type of tree, so that means that if a strong breeze comes, uh, there is high probability that the tree will break and, and fall to the ground. You know? So that's a natural limiting factor for for the scarlet macaw to improve the numbers of wild macaws in the Chiquibul forest. You know?
0: So there really aren't that many types of places where these macaws could make their nests, it sounds like. So how hard is it for a macaw to find a tree cavity that it can make a nest in? And how hard is it for poachers uh,
1: to locate a, a macaw nest? I think it's harder for the macaws to locate a potential cavity. Uh, it's really easy for poachers and even researchers to locate a macaw nest. A, a very interesting behavior of breeding macaws is the slightest noise that they hear outside A twig breaks, a bird flies by, they will poke their heads out from the cavity. So you have a gray tree with a red head sticking out. No, so that's a given okay, it's a maca there, that's a maca. Once you see something like red attached to the main stem of a tree, you say, "Oh, that looks like a maca, and then you go and investigate and really confirm if it is a maca nest or or not. So they have that behavior that the slightest disturbance outside it will cause them to investigate what is happening. No? So maybe it's a sort of an adaptive mechanism that or strategy that they have because they are long-lived species up to 60, 70 years in the wild. So uh, they will prefer to lose their nest or chicks than for the adults to be eaten by any potential predator. No? So it could be an adaptive strategy for them. But for poachers, it's like the best bird that you could be poaching, no, because it gives its position.
0: So there just really aren't that many places where these macaws can nest. And then where they do nest, they're really obvious to researchers, but also to poachers, right? Because as you said, they stick their head out and they're brightly colored. And then they make these really loud calls too, right? Can you talk a little bit about the sounds that the macaws make?
1: The, the, the song is like, it's, it's total chaos. These birds are really noisy. They song, like, they're always quarreling. It's not like the vocalization of the other parrots that used to sort of have a melody for macaws, It's just monotonous. It's the same almost identical call. Either if they are socializing, when they are flying, when they are just perching on a tree. And really interesting over the years and spending a lot of time in in the uh, breeding site of the macaws, they vocalize a lot during the morning, like around 5 in the morning to 7 in the morning. That is their peak vocalization time. And then late in the evening, around 5 to 7 at night, they will vocalize again. And maybe it's a means of communicating with, with one another. Uh, We have macaws that will vocalize here. Then uh, others will respond, and they will come together, flying together. Uh, They will perch on a tree, vocalize for half an hour, and then everyone will go to do their thing. No. So the vocalization in a tropical forest is, is really—you could sort if you don't recognize the vocalization, you will remember it at least, and you will start to ask and say, "What was this uh, animal? No, sounds like a really angry species of wildlife, like schooling everyone in the forest." Yeah, I mean, it's a a crazy sound
0: that they make. And like I said, it's instantly recognizable, and you can hear it from really far away, right? Yes. This is Wild World. I'm Scott Solomon, and I'm joined by conservation biologist Dr. Boris Arrebalo. When we come back, I'll be talking with Boris about why he first got interested in trying to protect the scarlet macaws in Belize. Want to see our wild world for yourself, one of the best ways is with Lindblad Expeditions. Discovery is in the Lindblad DNA. They've been exploring the most amazing places on the planet for more than 50 years. They have the most advanced fleet of expedition ships in the world, and their trips create unprecedented opportunities for guests. Visit expeditions.com to see where in our wild world you'd like to explore next. Welcome back. This is Wild World. I'm your host, Scott Sullivan. And my guest is Dr. Boris Arevlo from the Wildlife Conservation Society, who's working to protect the scarlet macaws. So let's talk a little bit about the Chiquibul region of Belize. So can you just tell me a little bit about where the Chiquibul region is and what what is that
1: region like? We refer to it as the Chiquibul Forest. The Chiquibul is a very important broadleaf ecosystem in Belize. Basically, the vegetation is subtropical uh, broadleaf forest in the Chiquibul. It's an ecological region composed of three protected areas, the Chiquibul National Park, the Chiquibul Forest Reserve, and the Caracol Archaeological Reserve. So this Chiquibul Forest is found in the Cayo District Central-Western, Area. And the Chiquibul Forest, it shares an international border uh, between Belize and, and Guatemala. It stretches 45 kilometers along the, the western border. You know? So do you remember the
0: first time that you visited the Chiquibul?
1: Yeah. The, and actually, the time that I visited the Chiquibul is what uh, sort of planted the idea of conservation and environmentalism. It was in 1999. Uh, I was a junior college student at that time, and I went to Las Cuevas Research Station. Uh, what impacted me in 1999 was the number of foreigners that were conducting research. And, and every day I spent a week there, and every night there were one or two researchers that would present what they were doing in the Chiquibul forest. Some of them were studying leaf miners, others were looking at fungi and lichen, uh, plant diversity, and uh, and the whole area of uh, biodiversity in the Chiqui Bull. And what really struck me was that there was no locals, there were no Belizeans, and I started to wonder, what do we have here that attracts uh, foreigners? And why are there no Belizeans doing this type of work? So that in 1999 was the start of my career in environmentalism, uh, conservation, and, and biodiversity as a whole.
0: You mentioned being impressed by the fact that there were a lot of foreigners working in the region. What was it like to be in the forest? Can you tell us a little bit about what you remember about those
1: first experiences of actually being out there in the Chiquibu Forest? I grew in a tiny village in the Cayo District, San Antonio, seven miles area. And we are surrounded by the jungle, by the forest, by birds, animal, wildlife, the whole area of biodiversity. But we don't uh, sort of look at biodiversity and at the forest in a way that foreigners look at it, or that researchers look at it, no? But my visit at Las Cuevas started to do that. I, I remember, like, I never pay attention to lichens, for example.
0: Right. Lichens are those weird, crusty-looking things that you often see growing on the tree trunks in the chicky bull forest. Yeah. I mean, they're super cool, because they're actually a combination of two different organisms, a fungus and an algae.
1: Yes, that's true. It's amazing how many species, how the organism behaves in the forest, how they could be used as indicator, things that uh, most of the time we take for granted now and started to ask more questions so there is, is an opportunity here there people from different countries see what we have why should we not pay attention to what we have before they disappeared from the area that we are, are living no so that sort of started the the idea of looking at the jungle in more in detail in sort of more in depth no and say, okay, it's a tree, but what does that tree uh, provide? How can it benefit us? How can we uh, sort of help the tree in one way or the other? No, because the tree is stuck there on on the same spot forever until a like hurricane comes and, and goes with it, but it doesn't move. So it depends on the humans, on animals that have that mobility for their dispersal and, and also for its survival. No, so that sort of questions i started to ask during my visit there look at the forest from a different perspective no? not the way how i used to look at the forest before so prior to that
0: experience were you interested in biology or conservation or what were you what were you studying in school what were you interested in as a kid what did you think you would do when you
1: when you grew up uh, Interestingly, when I was in primary school, my dream was to become an archaeologist no that That was my idea because I remember during school trips we were taken to to see Mayan relics uh, archaeological sites, visited the the local museum in, in belize and that was in primary school when I started junior college. I went into computer networking, nothing to do with archaeology, but I didn't. I felt I belong in, in computer networking. So after the first year of schooling, I switched to environmental science. And that really exposed me more to some of the environmental issues that we were having at that time in, in Belize. I remember clearly at that time, it was the whole issue of the chalio Dam and its environmental
0: impacts. So at the time that you first visited the Chicky Bull in 1999, that dam had not yet been built. But were they already talking about that?
1: Yeah, 1999, that trip, I had the opportunity to visit the site where the Chalillo Dam was going to be built there was nothing. It was only forest. The river was there. Actually, it was the first time I saw Scarlet macaws in the wild uh, in that area. So it was a nice experience. I had that opportunity to be there before the dam, during the construction of the dam, and after the dam was built and sort of visualize how that whole ecosystem has gradually changed over time.
0: listening to Wild World. I'm your host, Scott Solomon. Coming up, we'll learn about the great lengths that Boris and his team have gone to to prevent the poaching of scarlet macaws in Belize. The Rice University Traveling Owls program offers exciting intellectual itineraries to destinations around the globe. Traveling Owls trips serve as a catalyst for lifelong learning and strengthen bonds between Rice University alumni and friends. You don't have to be a Rice alum to participate in Traveling Owls programs. Visit alumni.rice.edu slash travelingowls to see a list of upcoming trips. Welcome back to Wild World. I'm your host Scott Solomon. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Boris Aravelo from the Wildlife Conservation Society. So, Boris, you've been working to try to protect scarlet macaws from poachers. Once you realized that poaching was a real problem for scarlet macaws, what were some of the first steps that you took to try to protect them?
1: Recognizing the challenges that the species was facing, uh, poaching being the main limiting factor, the first Here, we invested a lot of time in just trying to identify where these nests were located, no? Going into the field, observing from March to late April, that's the breeding season of macaws in Belize, and documenting, no? Taking GPS readings of where the nests were located and observing and mapping the network of trails that were in uh, within the breeding site not to understand where the poachers are accessing the site where the uh, poachers camps are, where they could get water and all this information serve us for the second year. The second year we deploy more effort in the area but still we were not that effective in preventing or stopping poaching no, because we were go into the breeding site for five street days and then come out from that area and go back maybe seven days afterwards. What we realized that during those seven days is where when the poachers started to do all the poaching. So the second year was a learning experience for us as well. So what we did the third year was basically send people and camp a hundred percent of their time within the nesting area, so by having people camping and moving around the area, that deter poachers a lot. You know? so you need to sort of camp at the nesting tree to prevent poaching. If we have for example fourteen a uh, nests during that season, then you sort of have at least. 10 teams to man those number of nests. So it, it became a little difficult to achieve 0% poaching. You know? And we continue and we reduce poaching to around maybe uh, 40% of year one. You
0: know? To what you said earlier about having people camping out near these macaw nests to try to prevent poachers from being able to access them. How did you even find people who would be willing to do that, just to be camped out in the forest for days or weeks at a time? Who who were the the people who were doing that?
1: At, at the beginning, we started with like youth groups, you no, know, going to junior colleges, and making presentations, and recruiting people. The environmental clubs, uh, that sort of individuals, you no. Know? Young people that wanted an adventure in the forest, a wilderness camping, you have to build your little campsite, you will cook open fire, things that that a lot of the young people have never done. So it it was really a time of adventure for these young individuals. Over the last five years, what we have tapped a lot is the birding guides and people that do a lot of bird watching here in Belize. We will put ads in Facebook. We will go to the tour guide association meetings and present. We will go to uh, radio talk shows and talk about these issues and at the same time recruiting people. And so it basically is a sort of a citizen science effort. A lot of young people participating, a lot of guides, tour guides participate uh, with us because they see the potential and they understand if we lose this iconic species, this scarlet macaw, one of those birds that a lot of international birders want to take off their birding list, is found in the bull. And in the bull, you have uh, at certain times of the year a 100% probability of observing the, the species compared to other areas. And the tour guide individuals know this. And so it has created this relationship where a lot of people understand. That they depend on the scarlet macaws. If you are a bird guide, you depend on, on the availability and existence of this species. And by default, if you protect one species, you are conserving the habitat of, I don't know, maybe a million other species no? that Belize used to market and attract foreign tourists. No?
0: So once you did this effort of recruiting volunteers to go and camp out near the nests of these macaws to try to prevent poachers from accessing them, so I mean, on the one hand, it was very successful in bringing the rates of poaching down, but as you said, there was still some poaching happening.
1: Yes. We said this is time-consuming, requires a lot of resources, financial, human-wise, then we lobbied the government, uh, the Forest Department specifically, to allow us to extract chicks that we knew they were going to be poached, at-risk chicks of being poached. And we built a very basic field laboratory where we will extract the chicks that have high probability of poaching, we will take them to a field lab, rear them, train them to fly, and eventually soft-release them. You know. That really helped us. And we managed to had a zero percent poaching of our nest. But the soft release and laboratory rearing of at risk chicks also has its challenges, and a lot of people question why we need to intervene uh, and do active population management. The justification that we provide is, uh, if we don't do nothing, then the maca chicks will be stolen by poachers. So we have to do looking at the numbers. At the last survey that we did, a national survey for scarlet macaws, we counted 330 scarlet macaws. So it's showing promising signs that we may not have a thousand macaws in Belize, but we are sustaining the population to one degree.
0: I mean, this work is just incredible. The amount of effort and resources and time that you've put into protecting these macaws. So if you decided that the next best step was to try to protect these, you know, chicks even even more by by going in yourself and taking them from the nests and, and rearing them so that the poachers wouldn't have access to them. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like? How did you figure out how to how to raise a baby macaw? What goes into that?
1: I think we sort of pulled all the courage that we had at the moment. We didn't had all the answers and experience to do what we wanted to do. We did a lot of research and asking and chatting, meeting and going, sort of field trips with people that were doing, to some degree, scarlet macaw rearing. Similar to what we were doing in the in wanted to do in the field, or they were like pet shop type of of business, but they had a knowledge like the food. What formula do we give as scared macaque chick, you no? So it, it was a lot of learning, but we had the courage to start to do it. Uh, Really important was the support that I got from the forest department. Uh, They realized and and said, um, we don't know. We have to do something if we want to have the species inhabiting the forest of of Belize. So the forest department was key in providing that support and acknowledging that the first one or two years was going to be a learning experience. And it's not to boost, but from the six seasons that we have done that, we have had zero mortality in the lab. So it was worth the research and the sharing of experience with key partners to have that success. Um, Rietno, we have managed to soft release around 50 chicks back into the wild. Uh, some of them we cannot guarantee 100%, but we have found a high evidence that they have started to breed and they have... Integrated into the wild population, so those are success stories. But these successes, it came by a lot of people joining efforts together.
0: Yeah, I mean, it really is a, a, an incredible amount of work that that you all have put into to this project. And and I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about that process, the rearing of the chicks. What goes into it? How much work it is when you're responsible for rearing these chicks, especially
1: when they're they're young. Rearing of the chicks, it's uh, time-consuming. It's a lot of effort, no? Usually, we try to extract chicks when they are old, and by old, it could be 10 days. We don't like to do that. We would want to extract chicks at least when they are 25 a month old because by this time, they have opened their eyes and they have seen their parents, and uh, uh, the parents would have passed some degree of antibodies to the chicks during the feeding process. If we extract them too young, then the eyes are closed and when they open, they see a uh, human in front of them, feeding them, their uh, immune system is not that developed. no. So it's it's a, a key balance that we need to do, like try to keep poachers as much away as we can But we know that the more days a chick spends out in the wild in these high rate of poaching areas, that increases the chances of we losing that chick. So that decision needs to be made. So what we did was to develop sort of a flow chart. Uh, If this happens, this is what we'll do. We will keep the chicks in the wild, or we will bring them to the lab. Once they are brought to the lab, then it's a daily care that we have to give them. Based on the age, we will be feeding them five, six times within the 24-hour cycle, and then slowly reducing to one feeding of formula a day. When we reduce to one feeding formula a day, then we we have started to introduce to the chicks solid foods, fruits that they will find in the wild eventually, or we will take bananas, papayas, apples, and all sorts of tropical fruits that we could find in the local market, make a nice salad to them, and introduce that salad to them. When the chicks are around 80 days of age, we will introduce them to an aviary that we have. By the time we introduce the chicks to this aviary, we are no longer hand-feeding them. We have to be very observant. There is a data log that needs to be filled. Every time you go and inspect the chicks or feed the chicks, you have to observe each chick, what he's doing, the alert, are they showing signs that they are eating by themselves, are they moving, all these observations you need to do. No, And we at the 80-85 days introduce them to the aviary. When they are introduced to the aviary, we start to hang their food on the branches, will go out into the forest, collect the, the branches uh, with fruits that they will normally eat in the wild, uh, bring them to the aviary, hang them, and that will uh, sort of force the macaques to start to fly. No, we have to be a little harsh with them as well. No, because we cannot always provide them food with our hands or uh, cut them pineapples and papayas and provide them a fruit salad. No, on a bowl, a water, they need to develop the skill of foraging, finding food on their own, learning how to fly, learning how to perch, uh, learning how to defend themselves and also how to form groups and have that social interaction with other Maca chicks. When we see that happens, when they have, uh, eating, eating by themselves, flying, perching, and they have formed these groups, then we start to think of soft releasing them. Soft release uh, usually happens when they are around 120 to 130 days of age, no? After we soft release them, we continue to provide supplementary food. We identify trees where they perch a lot, and that is where we will uh, put a feeding platform with uh, some food for them that eventually, on a daily basis, we go reducing until one day the macaws will reach that feeding platform and they will not find food. Now, that prepares them to survive in the wild. So it's a long process.
0: It's just an amazing process that you've put in place, and, and I know it's incredibly time consuming and requires a lot of resources that you've been able to put together. So it's really impressive. love to travel and experience new places, and I've had the great pleasure of joining several rice-traveling owls trips operated by Lindblad Expeditions. Each of these trips, from the Galapagos Islands to the Belize Barrier Reef, Baja California, and the upper Amazon River, has been absolutely incredible. Lindblad Expeditions make nature and wildlife accessible to anyone. Visit alumni.rice.edu slash traveling owls or expeditions.com to learn more and to see where in our wild world you'd like to explore next. This is Wild World. I'm Scott Solomon, and I'm talking with Dr. Boris Arevalo. Coming up in our final segment, we'll talk about some of the risks involved in protecting scarlet macaws in Belize and also some of the things that you can do at home to help protect these amazing animals. Welcome back. This is Wild World. I'm your host, Scott Solomon. My guest, Dr. Boris Arevalo, has gone to great lengths to help protect scarlet macaws from poachers. So, Boris, given that you're out there in a remote rainforest area of Belize, mm-hmm. and you're trying to stop poachers who are there illegally in the first place because they have crossed the international border from Guatemala, are you ever concerned about your safety?
1: Uh, there is always that worry of, or that concern of personal safety, but you have to put it behind your mind, no? At the back, for example. But that doesn't mean that you don't have that. It's, it's there, but that doesn't prevent you from doing the, the work. I feel that there are more personal dangers out there that, for example, I, I go walking, stumble, and then I break a limb. That's a danger. With the poachers, uh, yes, a lot of them are armed, but they, they are humans like us as, as well, no? They, they are no monsters. Um, they know, and the experience has been that they don't, they, locally, we have not been attacked by them because they are so far away from their villages. Uh, what we try to do, and we, that's like a operational rule that we have, is that the people working in the protection of the macas, uh, biomonitoring of nests and, uh, working at the laboratory is we don't engage poachers. Simply we don't do it because that puts yourself at risk. What we will do is to pass the information to the ranger team. That is, that's their, uh, objective, no? To deter and apprehend poachers, no? and and they have the training, they have the skills, and they have the equipment to to do that. No, while us we are only walking with a pair of binoculars and a field notebook, a GPS or something to record our data. No? So we try not to do two things at the same time, uh, because one you will not be fulfilling either objective, and then you are putting yourself more at risk. No? So we have to make that the de- distinction in the field. Doesn't matter how much you want to apprehend or stop a poacher from going with one of your chicks that you have monitored, for example, 60, 70 days in the field. You just have to let it happen no? uh, because of that personal safety. And that is communicated to every volunteer that goes there. Don't put yourself at risk to see if as Scarlett no, We are here, we will deter poachers, we will do it the way we can, and uh, that's it. We have to make that line. What does your family think about your work? Interestingly, I don't share much of my work with my immediate family, with my wife, with my son. They know that I work in the Chiquibul, they know that I come to Belize, that now I am working in WCS, but I am still attached to the Chiquibul and, and, and FCD. But I don't go much in detail in the activities or the things that happen out in the Chickaboo because I know that by sharing a lot of information, I put them at risk as well. The less they know, the better because then there is no link, uh, from myself and a family. No? So we have to think of that as well, although we are researchers trying to save a species, we have to look at it also from a security perspective. They don't shoot at me, but the less a poacher knows about myself, about my family, I feel more safe. I don't want my wife and my kid to worry about what I am doing in the jungle. Uh, they know I work with Scarlet macaws, and there are incidents where we encounter people doing illegal stuff, but that is what uh they know. And sometimes they will hear on the local news about something that happens, but that's it, no? Because the poachers, the individuals going into the pool and doing the illegal stuff, they are the guys that are more desperate, no? But the people that finance the activity, they are the powerful, and they have the resources to investigate people, uh, to know where you are going, to know who is your family, to know all of what you do on a daily basis. And we have had some situations that that sort of transpires where we have interesting figures or individuals, No asking a lot of questions. They, they, will. You are at a restaurant just uh, having lunch and they will approach you and start to ask you questions. I know you work over there. Uh, what is the situation? Do you know this individual? Do you know the other? So those types of questions, when we get in public places, raises red flags. No? It's like a detective type of work that we have to do and be aware of individuals that we don't know and they seem to know a lot of the work that we do or the organization that we work with so we try to sort of not engage with that type of conversation in public places and and individuals on the street and and things like that no so the information that we share is a public information but there is a lot of information that we have to keep to ourselves like for example simple a location of the nest we don't share that we tell you we have 10 nests and they're around this area, but that's it. We don't share the names of people that are with us and, and things like that. No, That helps us to keep us more safe and keep our families uh, at peace as well.
0: So what can people who are listening to this, who maybe want to, to find some way to help, what can what can people do to help the scarlet macaws of Belize and to help the, the Chiquibua Forest?
1: Uh one thing is simply if you are a pet lover and one of your objective was to add a wild scarlet maca to your collection, simply don't do it. No? Don't create a demand that's the first step uh then if you want to volunteer there you could contact friends for Conservation and development uh shoot them an email a whatsapp message and they will be more gladly to to help you know and say i want to volunteer i want to donate or, or things like that but the first step is if you were thinking or planning to acquire yourself a card macai either uh one uh, reared at a pet shop or thinking of a wild one because you want to boost that you have a, a wild scarlet macaw don't simply don't do it that's uh, the best that you could do for for any species not only for the macaws
0: if people are looking to get a scarlet macaw pet is there a way to be sure that it came from the wild as opposed to having been bred in in captivity
1: it's very difficult very very difficult and i tend to follow stories about the illegal wildlife trade. With the hyacinth macaws and the fixed macaws, it's really interesting. And I think the scarlet macaw is getting to that point where we have had incidents of legal pet shops in Europe selling wild scarlet macaws as if they were reared at their facility because there is no way to do that unless you do a complete DNA analysis and trace back from where the parents are coming, no? where they will extract the eggs, even eggs from the wild, from hyacinth macaws and other very uh, more scarce species. And they will take them to their facility, hatch them and breed them no? because maybe their breeding pairs are no longer producing at their facility. So we have had those instances. No? So it's very difficult. I know this also puts a, a strain on the legal pet market, it's, it's a business and a lot of people make their livelihood out of the legal pet business and there are plenty of mechanisms trying to regulate that from not happening like the banding, if you go to a legal pet shop, they will give you a sort of a registry of your animal who were the parents from where they were coming even the number, the band number of the parents direct parents of your individual that you are acquiring and make sure that all of this is, seems legit in one way or the other but again that's very difficult no? and like there is money laundering there is wildlife laundering as well
0: Well Boris thank you so much not only for, for speaking with me but also just for the incredible work that, that you're doing with, with your team in Belize and, and in the Chiqui Bull Forest it's, uh, it's, it's really impressive and it's really important thank you Thank you, Dr. Solomon. And again, thank you for allowing me to be a guest. Woo! That's it for this episode. For more information about the work that the Wildlife Conservation Society's Belize chapter is doing, visit their website at belize.wcs.org. To learn more about the Chicky Bull Forest and its endangered scarlet macaws, Check out Friends for Conservation and Development at www.fcdbelize.org. Today's episode featured music from Belizean musical group, the Garifuna Collective. You can find Wild World wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe now or follow us on social media for notifications about new episodes and additional behind-the-scenes info about our guests and the wild places they work. Wild World was produced by 3Wire Creative. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Scott Solomon. Join me next time as we explore another part of our wild world. Next week on Wild World, we're going scuba diving. In the desert? Join us for an underwater adventure to search for clues about the mysterious disappearance of some of the world's most unique and gigantic wildlife.